This month, it's an investigation into Joss Whedon's unrealized DC films and one finished film that he worked on and probably hopes we forgot. Plus, we discuss Joss's lost but not forgotten original film script for Goners before answering your listeners' submitted letters. I'm Dennis St. John. And I'm Tyg, and this is The Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of upcoming HBO series The Nevers, an original sci-fi drama from writer-director Joss Whedon. If you'd like to follow us online, visit our website at hbothenevers.com. You can also stream our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and basically anywhere else you can find podcasts. Joining us this week, we have a special guest. Joining us from the Nevers cast, we have... Heather. Hey, how are you guys? Pretty damn good. I'm excited to be here. I really enjoy working with you guys. It's good to see you again, Tyg and uh, Dennis. Uh, sound like a great guy. I like listening to you on the show. Thanks. Yeah, it's nice to meet you via the waves. <laughs> the interblog. The interloops. <laughs> it feels like ages since we last recorded, but it actually hasn't been that long. Uh, I mean, it's uh, the holiday season right now, so for me that means, you know... Uh, putting off shopping as long as I can. and <laughs> I went to the post yesterday to take a package to mail to Canada because it'll take forever to go from here. And I, usually at the post office at like 10, 30, 11 in the morning, it's a ghost town. And I walk in and there are like 50 people in line. And I'm like, nope. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Turn around, put it in my car and left. <laughs> it's like, I wasn't even thinking. Like, what are you thinking? So, ugh, awful. Awful. Let's move on to the news. Two new people have been hired to join the Nevers backstage. Both Game of Thrones alumna, Michelle Clapton and Rowley Earlham. You don't know those names, probably, but I guarantee you know their work. Michelle Clapton was the Game of Thrones costume designer. And no matter what criticism you can level against Game of Thrones... The costumes were fantastic. Oh, absolutely. So if Michelle can carry on that work on The Nevers, we know at least if nothing else works out, they will all at least look wonderful and Victorian and fantastic. And Rolly Earlham, again, the stunts on Game of Thrones, they did some of the largest battle scenes in cinematic and television history. The dude knows his stuff. And hopefully he'll bring that to the Nevers as well. I mean, I would venture to say when you talk about Game of Thrones and you look at the, the uh, documentary that followed up the series after it ended, the craftspeople and the people on the ground day to day were all brilliant. The, pe- yeah. the people in charge of the set decoration and the costumes and the stunts and the, you know, the, all that stuff, just, you know, cream of the crop. And you could tell how much time and mental energy they invested into the show. So, and also it it uh, managed to create a fantasy world that looked very well lived in, mm. and I think that'll really uh, yep. help for the Nevers, right? Yep, indeed. We're, yep. we're not going to want kind of we want lush Victorian outfits. We don't want them to look like they've just come off a hanger. We want them to look like these are actual clothes that people have actually worn. Especially because I yeah. imagine in like the um the orphanage seems to be quite a central location. We don't want people coming out wearing kind of smocks that look artfully worn in a few locations, but otherwise look fresh off the till. We want them to look like these are you know, poor children that have been raised 
by the state and haven't had the best time. That should be echoed in their clothing. Yes, definitely. I don't know about you guys, but up until this point, I had previously assumed it was going to be a relatively like small show in scope. I didn't think there was going to be kind of large battles and huge stunt sequences. I thought we may get a few fights, but there would be more in the way of like the Buffy fights, where it was kind of one person versus maybe like three or four max. But if, he's, if they're bringing in a heavy hitter from Game of Thrones, do you think that we may be seeing a few large-scale battle sequences or possibly large stunt sequences? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of begs the question of how important are stunts going to be in this show? And it looks like super important if they're bringing Roly in. Like, complex, maybe some big battles, like... I mean, we do know from those character profiles that we do. Like one of the potential antagonists is an ex-naval officer. Could be we're going to be seeing some large sea battles in flashbacks. I would very much like to see that. I mean, after coming off of uh, Assassin's Creed, Black Flag, and Odyssey, I'm very much enjoying the naval battles at the moment. Our first topic for the night is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Around 2001, Whedon was hired as a writer for Darren Aronofsky and Frank Miller's Batman Year One after the Wachowski script was rejected by Warner Brothers. It would have been written by Joss, possibly directed by him as well. Whedon's take portrayed an orphaned Bruce Wayne as a morbid, death-obsessed child whose grief was overcome when he protected a girl from being bullied in an alley similar to where his parents were murdered. A scene that makes Joss well up thinking about, to this day, says Whedon, he's like this tiny 12-year-old who's about to get the shit kicked out of him, and then it cuts to Wayne Manor, and Alfred is running like something terrible has happened, and he finds Bruce and he's back from the fight, and he's completely fine, and Bruce is like, I stopped them. I can stop them. That was the moment for me when he goes, oh, wait a minute, I can actually do something about this. The moment he gets his purpose, instead of just sort of being overwhelmed, by the grief of his parents' death. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was to pick a director that I think is perfect for a Batman movie, especially working from Frank Miller's Batman Year One, it would be Darren Aronofsky. He would create a Batman film that was absolutely insane in just the right kind of way. And looking at that quote, Whedon's writing with Aronofsky's directing, or like... Aronofsky's outline with Whedon writing and directing, I think that's something I really need in my life. Like, do we know if that script ever saw the light of day? Can we dig that up somewhere? Because I need to read that. I have never seen the script. Um, I know that nobody in 2001 was ready for Darren Aronofsky's vision of Batman, <laughs> even if it was year one. Um, if you've watched anything else by Darren... It's incredibly bizarre in a good way. I love Darren Aronofsky's stuff, but in, in the early two aughts, the you know superhero movies were not. We weren't doing the gritty thing yet. Everything was still pretty bright. And um, between Aronofsky's quirks, which I also think probably him and Joss clashed. He clashed with the studio. Um, yeah, I actually have a hard time seeing Aronofsky and Whedon's sensibilities connecting. Yeah, 
absolutely. I'd love to see like you know a Darren Aronofsky villain who drills holes in his own head. You know, <laughs> I'm over the Joker for the most part, but I'd watch Darren Aronofsky's take. I I was over the Joker, but have you read uh, Sean Murphy's White Knight? I have not. No. Josh, uh, Josh, my partner, probably has. It is absolutely fantastic. It's a very very fresh take on the Joker. And the whole the whole Batman it's my favorite version of Batman ever. It's fantastic. So that that's the ver- that's the story where other ver- the the human version of Joker is like still alive somehow or something. Yeah, right? basically and the, the, and the, a cop. The, the the very no the very first scene of White Knight, like the very first issue of White Knight is Batman chasing the Joker through like the city and they're, they're blowing shit up and being very Batman and Joker. Batman finally corners Joker and then just starts forcing fistfuls of antipsychotic drugs down joker's throat nearly kills him but when he kind of when he wakes up uh the, the joker is gone and he's, he's back to being um i've just completely blanked on it um, the name that's jack napier he's back to being jack napier okay, yeah. for some reason yeah. when i was going to say jack napier edward nigma jumped in my head and i couldn't get another <laughs> i was trying to think of the name and then when he said edward nigma all i could think of was edward nigma no, he's back to being jack napier like as a nod to um the 89 Batman. Yeah, um, Tim Burton's. Enigma's, it's Enigma's the Riddler, yeah. right? Enigma lulls. Uh, yeah, I know. I really love the guy that played him on Gotham. If you oh, guys haven't seen yes. Gotham, I thought that was a great the show. The interaction between Enigma and Penguin on that show was fantastic. It was like, Absolutely. by the last season, I wasn't a fan of the last season, but I thought the interactions between Enigma and Penguin really saved it. Actually, I think Riddler would be a very good villain for a Joss Whedon Batman. If Joss Whedon was to make a Batman film... I would very much enjoy his take on the Riddler. I can see I can see him writing a kind of very twisty, clever villain. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say his villains tend to be pretty elegant, pretty well spoken, hmm. except for Glory. She was just a brat. <laughs> uh, I, it's interesting you brought up um, Gotham, just because this description of the twelve-year-old and everything sounds to me more like Gotham than it does to. Than it does like what I think of as year one, Thunder Miller year one. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that was just like sort of a prologue type scene, and then it would jump forward a few years and we'd get starter Batman. Yeah. Because I mean, if, if the whole film was 12 year old Bruce, I think that would that would not work. Yeah, and and 12 year old Bruce saving a girl is very on brand. Mm. You know. Yeah. Speaking of villains that Whedon could write, though, he actually had a new villain. But Whedon's script featured a new Hannibal Lecter-esque villain. In my version, there was actually a new villain. It wasn't one of the classics, which is probably why they didn't use it. It was more of a Hannibal Lecter type. He was someone already in Arkham that Bruce went and sort of studied with. It was a whole thing. I get very emotional about it. I still love the story. Maybe I'll get to do it as a comic one day. That's a quote from Gizmondo.com. I think this does tie in quite well to the conversation we were just having in that I think by this stage, a lot of people are a little bit tired of a lot of the Batman villains, Joker especially. But also, I've seen about six versions of Ra's al Ghul now, and they've all been pretty terrible. So, do you think it was a good idea for Joss to create his own sort of Hannibal Lecter-esque gentleman psychopath villain? Or do you think he would have been better off following our idea and, say, adapting someone like the, the Riddler? Um, I personally don't have an issue with him creating a villain. I think this sounds way too much like Silence of the Lambs, which mm. would it would with Hannibal Lecter, but I don't I don't maybe understand Bruce 
doing a whole tete-a-tete with with somebody in Arkham. Um, And we know Joss can be derivative. Um, I've been watching back through Buffy, which I do yearly, and we're on, I just finished season four, and we're on the Joss was into the Matrix part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) To cut him a little bit of slack, everyone was into the Matrix around then. We can forgive him. It's a great (laughs) Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, just just my personal thought on that is, is he would, he, he would need he would have needed to divorce himself a lot from Silence of the Lambs because A, it was super successful and uh B, we just you know, you don't want to be too derivative with a new villain. The new villain would really have to be something if you're gonna use one, he needs to be super original. I think that's an excellent point. There's no there's no point making a film putting in a brand new villain that you've created and having it being just like someone in a different film. Yeah. I mean, I I also I get the thing that he's trying to do also of like if this is Batman Year One, it's before all the villains get costumes also. So it's like this is a yeah. villain wearing a human face, which is a little like you know it sets up that things are going to get more extreme in Gotham, right? But I'm also of the opinion that like uh, if you're doing work for hire, never really create something new because then the company's going to own it and what is the point on your like it's only going to be heartbreaking for you to create something don't give your ip away yeah Yeah. (laughs) i hadn't even thought of that but that is a yeah that's a great point dennis i wonder if they still technically own the rights to that character though uh i don't know if it wasn't used it's a if it's a spec script that no it wasn't spec i guess he was he was hired written for hire so they probably still own it yeah Going back to talk about The Matrix, it seems the Wachowski brothers, almost the Wachowski sisters now, uh, they also submitted a script for Batman, but much like Whedon's, their script was rejected. My heart was on the table. I was on fire. I was so into it. And I could tell the executive I was talking to was just completely thinking about their schedule and their window. And it was like I was talking to a wall. It was a different language. I was like, why do I do that? Why do I get so invested in that Batman story? Hmm. And I drove away from the meeting and I actually said to myself, like, how much more indication do I need that the machine doesn't care? And I got back to work and a phone call that Firefly was cancelled and I was like, it was a rhetorical question. It was Uh, not a request. uh, Come on. It's a little quote there from uh, a GQ interview that Joss did. That's going to be an awful day. I just for through the years of reading Joss's interviews and what you know watching them he's all whatever he's in he is into like he is definitely and that's why he's so good is he's a he's a heart on your sleeve completely a hundred thousand percent invested in his current property and you know I'm sure you know parts of him were so invested that you know getting rejected is just awful mm, you know yeah. So I don't, I don't, I never think of Joss as just a, a job writer. There are job writers and he's not one of them. He is very much kind of an artist of the craft. When he's doing something, he, he is 100% into that project, which makes it so much sadder that so many of his projects haven't been able to live up to their full potential and have been kind of cut down before they've even been given a chance in some cases. So I'm really hoping if you're listening, anyone from HBO please respect his devotion to his sources and please don't cut him off at the knees and if you're listening joss hello and thank you so much we feel for you (laughs) i'm like i'm sure it's not as painful for us as it was for you but it's pretty damn painful i can't imagine he went to hbo without a without a writer that was like complete creative control yeah i just i hope so he he, at this point he has the juice so true 
and he had and he had a bidding war so true you always forget that that there were two quite major companies both vying for this show which is good in two for two reasons one it means that hbo have probably put in a fair amount of capital behind this so they're going to be committed to making it work and two if they do drop it there's a very good chance netflix will just swoop in and take it if they're allowed I would love to see the Wachowskis script too. Yeah. I mean, I know, yeah. Say what you will about the Wachowskis; they're great writers they as really well. Are. And 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 uh, yeah, I was thinking got, that also. If they got rejected, I mean, I don't know what uh, what Warner Brothers was after at this point. If they rejected both them and Joss and Darren Aronofsky, right? Yeah, you have to wonder. Well, like, everyone yeah. thinks. Wachowskis, they did The Matrix, that was fantastic. But you forget, they did also do Speed Racer, which was a giant clusterfuck. I love Speed Racer. (laughs) I am more of a fan (laughs) of the Wachowski siblings as Speed Racer than I am of, like, you know... Oh, really? That's interesting. I thought... I just... That movie is Cloud Atlas was brilliant, too. Like, I'm more into the idea of them going all into weird stuff. Like... You know, the stuff they do that, like, like works for mainstream is, like, fun and it works. But they're, like, when they're, like, tripping balls on, like, <laughs> yep, on, like, just weird cinema colors, like, that is, like, what I want, you know? Yep. While I, while I wasn't a huge fan of it, I think aesthetically, Speed Racer was fantastic. It did just... Oh, it's it beautiful. ...like a cartoon, and that's amazing. So I, I think visually their batman would have been very it would have been more like the kind of pow bang kaplow 60s sort of tv show batman than the more kind of nolan verse grimdark batman we come to expect i think that could have been a very interesting watch but i'm not sure if the story would have been grounded shall we say yeah Josh and I have long arguments about who's the best Batman, and Clooney to me was a great Bruce Wayne, but not a great Batman. Pretty accurate, to be fair. But I will say I have very, very high hopes for uh, the upcoming The Batman with um, R. Pats and the guy from Planet of the Apes, because the Planet of the Apes trilogy was fantastic. Brilliantly written, great story arc. I'm really interested to see how Pattinson does. Um, I hope he bulks up. That's the thing. I have a feeling he won't be as swole as people have come to expect for Batman because they seem to be going for a very kind of mask of the phantasm and almost Gotham by gaslight kind of world's greatest detective Batman rather than the current. I'm a master of 128 martial arts. I can kill you with my pinky toe sort of ninja Batman. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was very light combat, at least in... Because I believe he's be making a trilogy, it's not just one film. I wouldn't be surprised if the, at least the first film was very light on combat. Looping back to our original conversation, after him and Miller left the project, eventually it was just scrapped. A reboot of the Batman film series was then released in 2005 as Batman Begins, directed by, as we all know, christopher nolan who to modern audiences i think has kind of set the tone for what people expect from a batman film now the question is do you think whedon could have had the same kind of cultural impact with his film slash trilogy if it had done well that nolan did or do you think he would have released one solid film and then just vanished Uh, you know i don't know i don't know i mean i I am not sure 
DC is Joss's playground in general. Yeah. Um, and I've taught Josh and I have talked about that. Um, and, and I'll talk about that more when we get into wonder woman, but I, I, I think he's a much more adaptable person to Marvel and, there you that's what he grew up reading that was he wasn't a dc guy he was he was a he was a marvel guy mm. so i don't know i it, it's hard to say because he is brilliant it could have you know if left to his own devices it could have been amazing you know i've heard the criticism that he's not a feature film director he's way better with series which i don't know if i buy i thought serenity was fantastic so but you have to wonder was serenity as fantastic as it was because it was kind of a bookend for a TV series. If Serenity had been the sequel to the two-and-a-half-hour Firefly film, would it maybe have had the kind of level of awesomeness that it did? Or was Serenity only as good as it was because it was it had the backing of a series, which is Joss's more successful media marginally? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I you know I I think it did I think it was fine standalone I think the series being out there helped but I know a, um, a lot of people that saw it without seeing the series and thought it was mm-hmm. great. I I mean I'll say I don't think he's ever directed a a movie that's as good as like an episode of television he's directed. Um, I mean his best episodes of television he's directed, but to rephrase it in a more clear way, the best episodes of television he's directed are better than his movies so far. Like I'd say, you know, to, Hush. To include Avengers? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, honestly, I think Hush and The Body and What's More With Feeling are like stronger than his movies. I, I mean, I think that's valid. I still think Restless is a really avant-garde piece of, piece of work. That's a strong counter-argument right there. I would also put his uh, Much Ado About Nothing is... That's very high on the list of his projects for me. Hey there, Never Writes. Kelly here. The Never's podcast is throwing a contest. The winner will be gifted a high-quality tee with the Never's logo adorning the front. All you need to do is tweet out that you're a subscriber of hashtag the Never's podcast. Not on Twitter? Not a problem. Just share a Facebook or Instagram post letting your friends and followers know that you're a subscriber of The Nevers Podcast and that they should really consider giving us a listen. And don't forget to include the hashtags The Nevers and hashtag The Nevers Podcast and tag us in your post so we can find you. The contest ends January 1st at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Good luck! As Heather just mentioned, we'll move on to our second topic which is Joss Whedon's Wonder Woman. Whisperings of Whedon being involved with a Wonder Woman movie began in December of 2004, when rumours began to circulate that he would direct the feature. Official word came on March 17, 2005, that he would write and direct the film to be released shortly afterwards. Now, as we know, the film never saw the light of day. However, if anyone out there has searched on YouTube, I'm sure most of them will, we do know there is a two and a quarter hour sort of fully cast script reading up there that I'm sure a large majority of us have seen. It, it's a solid, it's a solid script, but there are some, some quite serious issues that I have with certain aspects of its characterization, shall we say. Would would you would you two agree that with that kind of analysis of the script? Sure. 
Yeah. Sure. I, I'd say I know. I don't think he really figured out what a Wonder Woman script should be. Mm. Uh, yeah. He wrote a funny yep. script. Totally but agree. I don't feel like it. It captured like a Wonder Woman voice. I felt like. Oh man, he wrote a really good like Buffy script. Yeah, it kind of it reads yeah, like they've yeah. taken a Buffy movie and just dropped a Wonder Woman skin over it. So, um, I remember when the the rumors started circulating because I was fully immersed at this this point, and we were all freaking out because we were so excited. And when the you know it wasn't, I don't think until a couple of years later the script started to leak, and it was really kind of like, huh. Not that I I read Wonder Woman in comic books when I was little, but I, I I haven't I'm admittedly not the biggest like comic book fan. Most of my energy goes into movies and TV series, but um, I kind of just thought uh, that it wasn't his strongest work. In even if it was a Buffy episode that he turned into a movie for Wonder Woman and fit it to her, it just wasn't. I don't know. I don't know where that script came from or where it was in the process, if it was first draft or whatever, you know, but it was, I was really surprised that it didn't kind of seem to have his magic. I think that's, and I felt like, I'm sorry. And I felt like there was some actually pretty now granted, this was 15 years ago, had some pretty big um, cultural faux pas and I'm some, you know, I don't know. Josh, who Josh, my partner, who who we probably should have had him on here actually because he's a huge comic book fan, uh, stated that Josh he didn't think Joss ever understood who Wonder Woman was, yeah. and that and she wasn't his brand, and he he did not know what to do with a woman that was already empowered. You know, that yeah. is an excellent it, freaking line. That is an almost perfect description of the failings of this script. It, it, with apologies to Josh, he he said that you know uh, Wonder Woman was not Whedon's fetish. <laughs> I don't know. He, he threw some uh, he threw some feet shots in there, so he tried his hardest. Bless him. So everyone, including Whedon, Whedon himself, seemed excited and confident that he would deliver a great Wonder Woman film. Jeff Rabinoff, president of production at Warner Brothers Pictures, said in the official press release, "We are excited about working with Joss. He brings great energy and creativity to the process." His work on Buffy makes him uniquely qualified to handle the Wonder Woman character. Producer Joel Silver added, There's no one better than Joss to adapt the legendary Wonder Woman comic book character, created in the 1940s into a dynamic feature film for 21st century audiences. And then Joss capped it off with, Wonder Woman is the most iconic female heroine of our time. But in a way, no one has met her yet. What I love most about icons is finding out what's behind them, exploring the price of their power. When Joel and I began discussing the character, I realised there is a woman behind the legend who is very fascinating, very uncompromising, and in her own way, almost vulnerable. She's someone who doesn't belong in this world, and since everyone I know feels that way about themselves, the character clicked for me. That all sounds great on paper. It sort of seems like he's read the description of her character, and just sort of read what he wanted to read rather than what was actually there. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, I remember us all, you know, demonizing Joel Silver when uh, when Joss left the project. Um, but maybe he did have a better handle on what he thought Wonder Woman should be than, than Joss did. I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I'd say even the skeleton is odd. There are things like, um, you know, they set the movie instead of in World War II or World War One, like the, the new movie did. 
it's set in kind of current day. And so the thing that drives um, uh, Wonder Woman out of Paradise Island is like just Steve Trevor and his mission, but it's not a war. So you're like, well, why, you know, why leave Paradise Island now instead of during like a wartime? Like the inciting incident doesn't click to me. Right. And and then that goes against the feminist vibe, not that she should own, not that. Not that that was something that was really a talking point when this first came out, although it, I, I'm hoping that it was, like that we were going to portray, you know, they wanted to portray her as a strong woman that wasn't going to, you know, let a, the whims of a man or whatever dictate where she was going. That kind of sounds like how it is, though, right? Yeah. You know, things for the script seem to be going well all up to through 2006. And then in May of 2006... Whedon noted that he'd received a first draft of his script back from the producers and was working on revisions. But, on February, 20, on February 2nd, 2007, MTV reported that Joss was no longer attached to the film. Via Whedon-esque, Joss said, Let me stress first that everybody at the studio and Silver Pictures were cool and professional. We just saw different movies. And at the price range this kind of movie hangs in, that's never gonna work. Non-simpatico. It happens all the time. I don't think any of us expected it to this time, but it did. Everyone knows how long I was taking, what a struggle that script was, and though I felt good about it, what I was coming up with, it was never going to be a simple slam dunk. I like to think it rolled around the rim for a little bit, but others may have differing views. So to me, that has always sounded, I remember when he released this statement to Weed Nask, um... To me, it always sounded like he gave them the script and then they, they changed it and they changed it and they changed it. And finally, I guess, Joss drew a line in the sand and that was that, right? So what version of the script are we seeing? I can't imagine at that time anybody was upset with... Um, I just don't see in Hollywood, even with Wonder Woman, you know, staking their ground and this is not feminist enough. You know mm. what I mean? Or maybe, you know, I, I, I've always been super curious about what actually the issue was with the script for Silver and Company. Yeah. Yeah, because the issues we have with the script might not be the same issues that... Uh, exactly. Yeah, the studio exactly. does. Criticism by some of Joss's Wonder Woman script. Is it justified or is it unwarranted? What are your thoughts? In an interview with Variety, Joss addressed this particular backlash, saying he went back and reread the script after hearing all the criticism. I don't know what parts people didn't like, but I think it's great. People say that it's not woke enough. I think they're not looking at the big picture. Whedon did concede that he wasn't, in air quotes, the most woke individual who ever lived at that time, but said that he still strongly believes both the script and characters within his Wonder Woman have integrity. I stand by it, he said. To me, that sounds like he submitted this script and they were like, is this actually the script you want to give to a real living adult actress and expect her to act in? But see, I think he's this addresses the media. I don't think this addresses the studio. And the media obviously tends to to take a, a much more liberal view of things. So, I mean, while it could be the studio that had the same issues with the script, I'm not 100% sold that it matched up with the criticism and, and and the criticism came later right because the script didn't get out there until right. later so so yeah so i i mean 
I mean, Joel Silver's been in Hollywood a long time. He's kind of one of those uh, installations like uh, who's who's Scott Rudin, mm. you know, that just has his hands and everything. They're part of the machine. So I'm not convinced that his criticism was the same as the woke feminist criticism that Joss got from a, a lot of the fan base, to be fair, and and kind of the the the, the media. I, you know, with, with apologies to the wild success of the newest Wonder Woman, I was, I was staunchly against, um, who they cast, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Gal Gadot for initially anyway, because I was angry that they were going to take a, from a storytelling point of view, take this tall, willowy supermodel and try and make her Wonder Woman, because obviously it was, you know, um, uh, male gaze fan wank, in my opinion, um, and at, she also wasn't a name. Anybody else they got for Justice League and for for uh, Avengers, a lot of the, the, the actors were established, right? And they went out and found somebody that had been in the Fast and Furious to, to staff this role. And, you know, I was hoping they would get somebody with, you know, that was actually big, uh, tall, and had some, some physical... Um, uh, in, you know, Presence. like Gina Carano was in the the, the running. It's crazy you just said that cause she would. She was my absolute top pick. For I think she would have nailed it. Yeah, me too. I really wanted Gina Carano to. Apparently, to... she's now being her name's being thrown around a lot for casting as She Hulk. She's in the Mandalorian right now too, and she's she's great. But I can't wait to see it because I'm loving that show so far and. I'm glad to see more Gina Carano. Now, do I think Gal Gadot's done a great job? Yes. Um, I, I still think uh, the newest Wonder Woman is problem- problematic with having the male, her male counterpart, you know, help her out way too much. You know what I yeah. mean? But I've got to say, I, I had but, big issues with the new Wonder Woman film, the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman. Like, uh, yeah, the, the No Man's Land sequence, fantastic. One of the best action sequences I've seen on TV in a while, in, on cinema in a while. But then you counterbalance that with the incredibly creepy boat scene when they're leaving Themyscira. Themyscira. Yeah. And it's like, for yeah. every good scene they put in, there was a scene that was <laughs> equally as kind of problematic, shall we say. And I thought the big final throwdown with Ares... I mean, it's yeah. that, that was more Steve Trevor's win than it was Wonder Woman's, and it should yep. have been Wonder yep. Woman's yep. win. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean, it was more damsel in distress yeah. stuff, and uh, you know, I felt like her appearance. And when we get to Justice League, we can talk about that. Her appearance in all the other movies was way more powerful than her appearance in her, her own. Her appearance, her like debut, her entry into the DCU in uh, BVS, where she blocks Doom, uh, Doomsday's yeah. attack. That is one of the all-time yeah. top superhero entrances in any film. And then she gets her own film. Yeah. Like, this is my chance to shine, but I'm not going to. Huh. I, I, yeah, I liked the new Wonder Woman. Um, I mean, it has its third issue problems for sure. I thought, it was, I guess I, I came similar of like, I was not sold on Gal Gadot. Partially because like, I did, I do watch the Fast and Furious movies and I was like, okay, so... You know, this series that has, like, a ton of badass women and the person from it you cast is the one whose special move is she gets the bad guy to slap her ass. That's her, like... <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, that's kind of a a rough choice. And I know Patty Jenkins didn't choose her. Um, she, no. 
Matthew Vaughn did. Yeah. But, I mean, I thought that the movie was really solid. Bringing it to World War One was a nice surprise instead of World War Two. I mean, yeah, it definitely has its third act problems. But I think that's the worst sin of it is, like, collapsing at the end. But I liked her journey through meetings, meeting Man's World for the first time. And, yeah, I mean, Chris Pine did do too much. But I thought he wasn't obnoxious, which I think Chris Pine no. can be. Um, <laughs> I just think he's like Army Hammer to me. He's mayonnaise. He's just there. <laughs> really, I th- he's okay for me. He's not my favorite Chris, but he's not my least favorite Chris either. Um, oh, who's your least favorite Chris? Uh, Pratt is my least favorite yeah, Chris. Yeah, Pratt's Pratt is definitely the worst Chris. <laughs> and the, um, so yeah, I mean, it does have its problems, but I thought it. I was surprised by how much I liked the Wonder Woman movie, um, and I also liked the 2009 Gail Simone cartoon version. Like, modern writer-wise, Gail Simone probably has the best handling of Wonder Woman. You know, if you you read her run on comic on the comics, it's really good. Uh, Jason Aaron has written, in my mind, the definitive Thor run. He's writing it. He's fin- it finishes next week, and I'm already crying waiting for the final issue. Yeah, I, in general, think we should be bringing more comic writers into these movie scripts. But you know, I'm not running Hollywood. Yeah, and yeah, at the very at the very minimum to to understand the the character itself and their arc and their origin story and their mindset. Yeah, I Wonder Woman especially, you know, uh, and and I'm glad Patty Jenkins directed the film. I mean, you know, but it doesn't remove her from criticism um, over a film that I I didn't feel like in the end did Wonder Woman's um, character as a strong woman as a you know you know and and i understand the origins for wonder woman were pretty pretty blue <laughs> with you know um i, I have to say josh the, josh will say wonder woman's all about bondage at the beginning of her yeah. her run but you know <laughs> when asked by avc if the female characters falling into eye candy roles was ever an issue with his wonder woman script josh said i have no idea Obviously, nobody ever said, don't be a feminist. And nobody ever said, don't be political. The politics of the movie were all more or less moral. It wasn't like we picked somebody to root against. It's just more like everybody either steps up or they don't. And this is their opportunity to do that. I think that's part of how they I got the gig. They wanted her to be strong. It wasn't like Buffy was a crone. It wasn't like anybody thought I wasn't going to make Wonder Woman extraordinarily beautiful that's part of her thing that she's so beautiful that men can hardly bear it i'm all about that and the power just makes her sexier i certainly wasn't turning my back on her hotness just because of my politics i think that's a common misconception about feminism in general and i don't think that's a trope of her i mean she is beautiful which in an amazonian powerful way i don't think anybody ever said that she was you know she was so beautiful men couldn't take it like she's not aphrodite yeah yeah, and I mean, that's even the thing of, like, Aphrodite's girdle is used in Wonder Woman as a lasso, not as a, you know, not to affect the shape of women, but to, like, control it as a weapon. It, I, I think men writing women um, f- can be problematic, and here's where... Not that men shouldn't write women, but, but when you're talking 
about Wonder Woman and kind of more of the the day-to-day stuff that women think. And you can tell when you're watching a movie, I can at least with men, that do things that I think is out of character for men. I'm like, men don't do that um, for the most part, right? So when you see stuff like that, you're just like, she, you know, Wonder Woman wouldn't do that. Who wrote this? This is somebody's friggin' fantasy as opposed to reality, right? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think I would love to see Whedon give it another shot now. But for now, Wonder Woman belongs to Patty Jenkins. And whether whether I am a huge fan of where it's headed now, which I'm, you know, it, it was fine. It wasn't the big revelatory film I thought it was going to be, but it's fine. And I like Gal Gadot fine. Um, that's where the character is right now. So I can, I can sort of... You get a pass if film one of a superhero franchise is just average. A lot of the best superhero franchises, like you know, Captain uh, Captain America, is probably the strongest trilogy in the MCU, and the first film is easily the weakest. I think the real kind of the thing for Patty Jenkins and her Wonder Woman is if she can nail the next one that's coming out next year. If Wonder Woman eighty four is as good as the trailers make it seem. I think Ugh, then she's the trailer. She's like she's well on the way to nailing the whole trilogy, but like we can forgive if the first one is you know problematic in spots. If she learns from that and nails the second and potentially third films, but I, I was not a fan of the first one. All right, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll just reiterate. I think I'm the the only one on this podcast right now who was, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't fight about I don't, it. I, I don't want to sound like I'm hating on it because, I, you know, at least she finally got a film and, and people were crazy about it. But I didn't see it until after a lot of people had seen it. And they were like, oh, it's amazing. It's this, that, and the other. And I was like, oh, great. They really did it right and everything. And I, you know, I should learn that the only person I should trust with how I think a movie is going to be is me. Um, yeah. I think, I, I mean, I'm in exactly the same spot. Oh, I was in exactly the same spot as you, Heather. By the time I got around to seeing it, everyone had been going on about how amazing it was, how it was like the, the best superhero film released that year and like, you know, fixes the whole DCU. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a pretty, you know, revelatory film. And then I watched it. It's, it's all right. It's not a particularly great film, but it's not a particularly bad film. It has some spots that are a bit dodgy. It has some spots that are great. It's a solid first film, but it's nothing special. So... Final thoughts on Joss Whedon's Wonder Woman. Do you have any negatives? Do you have any positives? For me, I would say one thing you really have to remember when you're listening to that script reading or when you're reading the script yourself is that was not a finalised script. They were not going to pick that up the next day and head the set. There was probably two or three reworks of that or like additions and changes to that script before it got anywhere near a screen. Like while we have just spent probably 40 minutes criticising it, you have to be a little kind toward the script because we were probably never meant to see that. It's very possible that some of the more egregious sections would have been cut before any camera started to roll. What you have to look at is the bare bones of the film. The introduction, I, I, I really enjoyed his the descriptions of his versions of Themyscira, I thought the Chimera was a solid villain. The last fight was great. The final line was, you know, kind of getting one last quip. Very strong. Bit of a tease that she can fly. He says something like, oh, what? People can't, like, people can't fly. And she's like, oh, really? And they kind of imply that she jumps off. It's a strong setup. 
and I thought their introduction and handling of Ares was far better than the incredibly lukewarm Ares we got in the DCU. So, I mean, I think we can cut them a bit of slack for that script. Uh, I'm happy with the movie that exists. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that um, I agree with you, Tag, um, that, you know, the time that it was created and the time by the time the 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 script leaked um and whatever stage the script in it you know is a lot of um conjecture um and it certainly doesn't hold up today to this me too standards or feminist standards or stuff like that our next subject is one that we were unsure about including because there's still something that a lot of people have very strong opinions on Justice League. In May 2017, Snyder told The Hollywood Reporter that he was stepping down from finishing Justice League in order to deal with the sudden tragic death of his daughter. Joss was officially brought in by Warner Bros and DC Comics in late March after selling them on a Batgirl movie, but we'll talk more on that later. While he was there, Joss agreed he would help finish off Justice League while Snyder was still helping him finish off the project. He was already working with us on some of the scenes for additional photography that we were going to do shortly, and it was fortunate that Zack convinced him and he agreed to step in and finish the movie. Help Zack finish his vision and we're excited about this, said Wonder Woman producer Charles Roven. Snyder then left when he was unable to keep working after the tragedy, and Joss, leaving Joss alone to complete the film. Charles Roven, the Justice League producer, told the Washington Times that Josh reshot, reshot 15-20% to 20% of the movie. Others said Joss Whedon's contributions could have been much higher. Joss also replaced composer Junkie XL with Danny Elfman. What are our, Do we have any secret hashtag release the Snyder Cut supporters? in the podcast today but what are our thoughts I, I, on Whedon after Lee? making fun of that for every view I've been on this podcast yep. wouldn't it be surprising if I was really a release the Snyder Cut guy <laughs> <laughs> so I have Google alerts set up for our podcast like I'm sure if, uh, Matt does to to inform me when something comes out either it's hashtag for the nevers or Joss Whedon or HBO blah 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 and when I go in to look at my alerts every day, 20 of them are Snyder Cut articles every single day. And I'm like, either release it or don't, but shut up about it. Well, actually, a, a friend of mine, <laughs> uh, this guy Charles from Charles's Anime World on YouTube, great, uh, great manga reviewer. He had a brilliant theory that he, and actually it was then about a week after he shared it with me, we saw a post about it. It turns out he reckons, and it seems like he's right, that they are withholding the Snyder Cut and are going to release it on their streaming platform to try and boost the viewers, and possibly even on HBO Max because DC and HBO huh. have a deal. A lot of the DC shows are going to be moving over to HBO Max alongside the Nevers, but not as good. And he has a, he has a theory that they're going to... Uh, release it on there to try and boost those day one viewers and if they do that it is a genius but terrible choice i mean wouldn't it be an unfinished movie that would take millions of dollars to even do 
the effects for and stuff? Apparently, no. Apparently, it's a lot more like uh, many people who were like um, a lot, a lot of the cast of Justice League. I think Batman and Aquaman have both said no. It's like ninety ninety five percent done. It's basically good to go. I you know I don't I don't. I've heard all the different rumors and it's just so convoluted now that Joss did more and the Snyder Cut was almost done. If the if the Snyder Cut was almost done, why the hell did they bring in Joss for 5% then? And I, you know, I mean, I, I'm okay with them releasing it. Go ahead and release it. It's it's kind of a slap in the face to Joss, but he's used to it, you know? <laughs> I think he doesn't really give a shit. I mean, just release it. It, it just release it so people will can see and either and and shut up about it. Of course, they'll just keep talking about it. Like, oh, this is so much better. Or that way, this is way worse. I don't know. That's my big thing with this. Everyone's like, oh yeah, the Snyder Cut's going to be amazing. It's going to be revelatory. It's going to you know completely destroy the cut we got. This is still the same director that gave us Batman versus Superman. Like they needed to release a second director's cut just to fix Batman vs. Superman because the original was so bad. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the the destructo, dark, gritty porn yeah. DC stuff. I'm yeah. just not. I mean, I, I I have the same problem that I had in later Batmans, Nolan Batmans. I can't even see the action half the time because they're so dark, you know? And and the dialogue's not very yeah. good. Yeah. It's, you know. And I'm just, I'm not a, I mean... I'm just not a fan of Zack Snyder's point of view about superheroes. No. Uh, especially not his Superman. Um, yeah. Which nope. is one of the weirdest things about the Whedon Justice League is he wrote, he tried his best to fix Superman and he finally gave Superman some like a little bit of humanity and feeling to, to him. But it's um, on this version of Superman that's so heavily CG'd because of Henry Cavill's famous mustache <laughs> that it's like, the most humanity <laughs> Superman's ever had is also in a the most artificial looking Superman that's ever existed. Mm. So like that's part of why like <laughs> this crazy visual and story dichotomy is happening. Like whenever I try to watch it, my brain can't handle it. Um, yeah. But like yeah, he has such a negative view about superheroes and about like I mean he's such a Atlas Shrugged dude. <laughs> And like, uh, his, like his next film coming out is the Fountainhead, so you're spot on with that description. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I just like like oh, spare, I don't spare want me. A, a, a Superman who is doing good things and evil music is playing is like an awful idea to me. I'm actually really impressed with the Superman that is currently existing in Supergirl because he's like a nice guy. I'm like I like I like seeing a, a nice friendly Superman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still say that the two best. You'll never, never, ever top for twelve-year-old me. You will never top Christopher yeah. Reeve. Yeah, ever, ever, ever. Like Reeve just nailed it so much. Like, he absolutely just like became that role. It's impossible to top it. The only one person I think who came close was Smallville. And that's because they did something not completely different. Like they just took it right back and they showed you kind of almost the prologue to. Reeves. Yeah, that was their Superman's Gotham yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, and I thought that was I really liked um Smallville yeah. a lot. Solid actually. solid show. For uh, for a little bit of time I was on a Smallville podcast, you know, we just we couldn't keep it going for financial reasons, but the premise is I have a uh, old roommate David Yoder, he's a cartoonist and he's made every single roommate he's ever had watch Smallville. So the idea is every episode it would be 
he, him hosting and a different old roommate coming in and rewatching an episode <laughs> with him. That so it's amazing. Like, you trapped us once and you trap us again. Um, so it's a lot of roommates. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it would be a repeating cast, but it was like five of us that were going to be it. But that's part of why it couldn't keep going is like it's really hard to schedule with five people. <laughs> we know. Um, but uh, um, I like Smallville because it's. I actually like as it goes on and gets further and further away from its premise and you're like, well, we can't be Superman, but he's an adult living in Metropolis working for the Daily Planet. But for some reason, he's he's called the Red Blue Blur, which is a <laughs> terrible name. It's almost as bad as Spider Tingle. I've got to say, I went to see Justice League because everyone was saying I should. And I've got to say, I left very underwhelmed. Again, much like with Wonder Woman, it was a solid film, but it it felt like they'd tried to jump straight to step five and hadn't done steps one, two, and three, and four. They should have released it after Wonder Woman, after Aquaman. And I, I was actually quite surprised by that because I, I was 100% Team Grant Gustin. But, I mean, the guy, they, the new guy they got to be sort of the DCU Flash, I've blanked on his name suddenly, I'm sure one of you will fill me in. I thought he did a really great job with the character. And I, I really think it's not fair for, like, what a mess that was going in. Like, yeah. you can tell Ben Affleck is done. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, Batman should be a main part of Justice League and stuff. There is a scene in Justice League that I think is supposed to be a romantic scene between Wonder Woman and Bruce Wayne where she's trying to give him a massage. <laughs> yeah. But Bruce Wayne doesn't take his bat suit off. And you can tell it's because Ben Affleck is too fat for it. But it's like the mechanics of it are insane. Like he's wearing this armored bat suit. She's giving him a massage, and you're like, "Wait, what?" I just think you can't you can't bring in someone like Joss to fix a film that was almost done, according to everybody, with two directors with very strong visions of what a, what a, what a superhero universe is, and try and make that work. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I just think that's a it's it's a miracle to me it turned out as well as it yeah. did because if you want to put two people's styles together and say that they're completely 180 from each other it's these two it's you know it's Joss and uh and Zack Snyder I mean I just I I don't know who I'm you know great for Joss stepping in but even I would have been like you know Snyder's completely different than me this is going to be really hard to to meet together yeah, it reminds me a lot of what I actually said on when I was on the Nevers cast a couple of weeks back. It it's just it's almost the exact same situation as has happened with the current Star Wars trilogy, in that you had the first film, which was done by J.J. Abrams, was a real like yep. hardcore yep. classic as possible Star Wars film, and he threw Ian Johnson in, who gave us this weird, out there, complete like it, it was his own take on the film, and it was nothing at all like. The, the previous Star Wars films or like the film it was supposed right. to be a sequel of they've basically done the exact right. same thing here where they've got Snyder who gives us dark gritty intense superhero films and then you've got Joss Whedon who gives us wacky action-packed quippy films and they actually somehow managed to go one step further and, than and Star Wars and way more existential yeah way more existential they've not just they've not had Snyder make Justice League and then Whedon make Justice League 2 they've somehow tried to make them work on the same film, I don't understand how anyone can think, hmm, we've got we've got Zack Snyder who makes these like grim ass 
you know, Superman murdering people films. We need someone to finish off that film. Who should we get? Like, you know, Tarantino, Aronofsky, people that do, like, really dark films. I just, I just, when I hear stuff like that or I see commercials that I think are, are patently awful or, or movies that somehow made it to a green light is much like this, that there is some tone-deaf executive sitting in a big mahogany desk in Hollywood going, I get that red-headed dude over there at, at Marvel that made all that money. Get him. He, he knows superhero movies. Get him in here and he'll fix it. You know what I mean? I mean, it could be they brought Joss Whedon in on purpose to, because his voice is so different, to, to try to correct the Snyder voice, but it's... Yes, yeah, and that's been, that theory's been floated. Um, the thing is, if that was their intent, then they should have done a far better job of executing it because they, it was too much. Right. It was kind of, it was too jarring of a kind of um, clash. It didn't Well, work. and was Batgirl already in the works? If Because we're going to talk about that was, next. Yeah. If Batgirl was already on the table, then maybe that was their logic, that he was going to make Batgirl so they could make Justice League more like whatever he was going to do. Yeah. Speaking of, in March 2017, Whedon was in negotiations to direct, write, and produce Batgirl, set in the DC Extended Cinematic Universe. The movie was said to be based on the Batgirl story that was first introduced to DC Comics in 1967, when Barbara Gordon appeared as the character in the million-dollar debut of Batgirl. After just over a year of development, he withdrew from the project in February 2018, claiming that he couldn't come up with a working story for the movie. Producer notes, bullshit. This is Joss fucking Whedon. He doesn't strike me as someone who struggles to come up with a story. Come on now. That was a little, was a little aside there from our friend Matt. Yeah, how do you really feel, Matt? <laughs> yeah. I, Let it I all have out. to say, I think, I think Matt's nailed it there. That was, that's clearly bull. That just screams, I needed a good excuse for why I'm ducking out. What can I, like, it was either that or creative differences. And he'd already used that line with Wonder Woman. So he had to come up with something new. So my thought and my thought when it happened was it was two pronged. He was already in the trenches with Justice League and there was probably problems there. And there and then there was the whole backlash to not to having a guy and, you know, on the heels of 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 uh, the problems he had been having PR wise. I think he may have just been like, nope. Right. Uh, Yeah, he agreed. Uh, I have I have to say, like, um. Of the projects we've talked about so far, this is the one that I'm. This is the only one where I'm like, I would have. That that sounds like it would have been interesting, just because I do like Batgirl, but there really hasn't been a live action Batgirl that's been very interesting since Yvonne Craig. Um, so, agreed. This is one I definitely would have been day one cinema. Even if I hadn't known it was Joss Whedon, I would have been there like day one to see it. I liked Barbara Gordon in, in Gotham, but she wasn't really Batgirl. She was just nuts. Yeah. She was completely <laughs> insane. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. <laughs> I actually had a theory that she was going to turn out to be Harley Quinn, and they kind of went along those... They, yeah. they kind of set that up a bit, but then when they went with the younger Joker, it just wouldn't really have worked, so they knocked it on the head. But I think that would have been a very fun path to take, because the, the actress was fantastic. Mm. I, I didn't make it that far into Gotham, sorry. <laughs> It's worth pushing on. The first season's a bit dodgy, but it gets a lot better. And then the last season sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to talk about Batgirl um, in the context of her having her own movie because I've always seen her as such a sidekick. She's never, to me, and she's had so many different iterations. She's just not her own person. So 
if we were in an ideal world and I was in charge of this stuff, I would definitely make a Batgirl film, definitely have Joss Whedon part of it, but I wouldn't do it about the Barbara Gordon Batgirl. The clear choice for me, you're making a Batgirl film, you've got Joss Whedon, only one name comes to mind. Cassandra Kane. She's badass and she's exactly the kind of character that Joss could write for. And basically, she is the daughter of two of the greatest assassins in the DC universe. Her particular power is that she's able to kind of read the movements of her opponents. So when they're thinking, all right, I'm going to ball up my fist, I'm going to pull her back to punch, she's already seen it, she already knows what they're going to do, and she's already got the block out. Like She's martial artist with like basic precognition, almost. And that's that's just a perfect character for Joss. That's the kind of character that he made a career writing. It, it seems like almost a kind of foregone conclusion that he would nail that role. Um, yeah, I I hadn't thought about Cassandra Kane. I am a Barbara Gordon fan, um, especially if you're going to read any of uh, to bring up Gail Simone again, any of her like uh, Oracle, Bird of Prey, or even her Batgirl runs. Um, I think I think she's got a really good handle of the character, also. Um, but yeah, I I would have I, I feel like a Batgirl standalone comic or movie would have been like um, a welcome like more lighthearted entry into the DCU. Hopefully, um, I can't imagine them make like it would have been a bummer to have made the, a Batgirl that was like based on the Ben Affleck Psycho Batman, oh, like. Like have her be like branding her, uh, you know, opponents and everything um, that but if it was like anything. Yeah, if it was like a um, a fun Batgirl movie, like based like all of Joss Whedon's quippiness that didn't work in Wonder Woman could work for Batgirl. Uh, I think it would have been fun. But, you know, say lovey. When asked by The Hollywood Reporter and Variety why he left the project Joss Whedon had this to say Batgirl is such an exciting project and Warner DC such collaborative and supportive partners that it took me months to realize I really didn't have a story it had been a year since I first pitched the story a lot had happened in that year the story just kind of crumbled in my hands there were elements that I just hadn't mastered that after a long time felt like I wasn't going to I told people that I didn't have an idea which isn't an exact truth I had an idea but it didn't fit in the space that was left for it it was a little heartbreaking but I'm working on something I own and there's nothing more exciting than that I have to wonder when he says I'm working on something of my own given the timing do you think he's talking about the nevers I think so see I mean if Batgirl is what we have to sacrifice to get the nevers I'm okay with that just yeah, I'd rather have a creator creating their own original characters than working on IP. I just wanted him back in TV, so I'm good with that. It is something of a shame that Joss just couldn't get any of these projects to work. He tried really hard to get something of it, like to put his stamp on the DCU, but it just never quite worked. But I have to say, I think that's just because he's not really a DC writer. His style doesn't right. fit in with the universe they were trying to create. He's much more kind of suited to writing for people like Marvel, who are like the kind of the slightly lighter, more colourful tone. And it's just a bit like, I'm sad that he never got a DC project off the ground, like all for, all his work. But I mean, I'd much rather he was working for people that match his yeah. tone. 
And to be fair, he had a hand in the creation of the Marvel Cinematic exactly. Universe. He was, before Avengers, he was in the background advising and helping with arcs. And, you know, a lot of people say he's why Chris, uh, Chris Hensworth got Thor because he, yeah. I mean, I, I think if, if he was instrumental to the, getting the universe off the ground, then of course his voice is going to match better. And, and I think, you know, he, he was a much bigger Marvel fan for the books to begin with. So I just think it's a much more natural fit. And DC has established a totally different tone of voice with their universe. I don't think they did the same legwork that Marvel did. They haven't put the, put the time or the, or the, or the strategy into what Marvel has done. And, and, and for that reason, I think they're always going to come up a little bit short to Marvel. Yeah. I, I think there's also something fundamentally weird about DC before you know, New 52 or whatever was a more lighthearted universe. And they've gone so hard with these characters who weren't built for darkness to make them dark that that tone is never going to, is always going to clash to me. Mm. Like, uh, somebody described, uh, you know, the current DC Comics as being like Axe Body body Spray. (laughs) And like, that's such a shame for like, you know, Superman should be like, somebody's kindly uncle he shouldn't be like I mean, he's meant to be like the embodiment of hope not some like yeah and, grim and he's, murderer he's he's yeah and he's like what i we said and we were talking in never's cast about good characters versus bad bad characters and why bad characters are more fun because writers tend to make them more complex and conflicted and that you know captain america and superman are very black and white and very rooted to their belief system you know what I mean? And and one mm-hmm. of the things was, and this bums uh, Josh out, my partner, is, you know, and um, Tyg mentioned it, is Superman shouldn't kill people. Yeah. Superman doesn't kill people. Like, that is anthema to who he is, right? Yeah. And if even if you read, like, Golden Age and Silver Age Superman comics, I've always interpreted the weird way he fights these human-level characters is he's just entertaining himself during battles. Sure, like, sure. He meets a character who's solar powered. So instead of like matching him with fists, he pretends to get beaten up for 50 minutes while he supercharges the guy's solar panels by like secretly x-raying it until it blows up. <laughs> or he's like, I'm going to become a human bo- boomerang. So every time you punch me, I just fly back and like, like there's no strategic reason for that. It's because he's so overpowered that he just entertains himself while doing this. And like... I'd much rather see that Superman than somebody who's like, well, I'll just crush your neck. Like, what an awful way to interpret ultimate power, you know? Next up, we have a little bonus section for all, for all our listeners out there. In 2005, after the release of Serenity, Joss sold a spec script to Universal Pictures for what's described as a mystery fantasy thriller with a female lead named Mia. This film eventually became known as Goners, and it was gone, because it never quite materialised. But Joss was attached to write and direct the film, with Mary Parent and Scott Stuber attached to produce. On the subject of Goners, Joss said, I've been seeing a lot of horror movies that are just torture porn, where kids we don't care about are mutilated for hours, and I just cannot abide them. It's an antidote to that kind of film, the horror movie with the expendable human beings in it, because I don't believe human beings are expendable. That was in an interview with Fanboy Radio. So, I mean, do either of you two have much to say about the Goners? Because, I mean, I'm not going to lie here. 
I didn't actually know this was a thing until I got the outline for this episode and saw it. I did a bit of research, but it seems like it was almost sort of more of a kind of... He pitched the idea and it sort of started work but never quite happened. And I'm not really sure... Do you think this informs House on the Hill or were they very different? Cabin in the Woods, sorry, House on the Hill is a very different film. Cabin in the Woods, do you think that's what this ended up as or is this a very different film? He's Well, he said that some of the ideas in in Cabin in the Woods came from from goners. Uh, I would specifically probably say the expendable human being part of it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I also had never heard of this before um, we started working on this episode. Um, And I was a little, like, surprised because I'm a huge horror fan. So I was like, Joss Whedon actually made, like, something horror-themed or was working on something horror-themed that I didn't know about. Heather, you seem to have a lot more info than the rest of us about this. <laughs> so, uh, Goners was on my radar as soon as as it came out. I had had ankle surgery um, that year, and I was I was stuck in bed, and I had just, you know, I was bed bound for like four months because they had to put my ankle back together from a horseback riding incident, mm. and uh, so I in bed I just went and watched Buffy and angel and um so i you know dove headlong into the 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 after i ran out like fan stuff and message boards and and fanfic and all that kind of stuff and as soon as this hit the radar i was trying to find information on it and there was uh all we knew at that point is he he had sold this script to universal with mary parent and scott stuber over there um Mary Parent, I think, I don't know about Scott, but Mary Parent was one of the exact producers on Serenity, um, which, an interesting side note, that Scott Stuber is in head of uh, movies on Netflix now, yeah. which might explain, explain the bidding war over Nevers, uh, the Nevers. Um, and Mary Parent has her own, uh, her own studio now, but she went on to produce uh, Pacific Rim, among other things. But uh, we had the quotes that... Um, he was talking about the horror movies. He came out and talked about the main character being Mia, who was pretty much, you know, kind of the waif, helpless waif that comes into power in line with uh, most of his his heroines. Um, and we were we were in. We really liked his his take on because this was when Saw and Hostel and all that kind of stuff was huge, and it's you know just super disturbing uh, horror. Which, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prude. I think there's a place for every type of horror, but this had just kind of taken over the lexicon and everybody was trying to outdo each other with how, you know, how gross they could be, <laughs> you know. Um, so I found this message board and it was a bunch of people that had come from other um, parts of the fandom to anxiously await this movie. And it, of course, never came to a fruition. Uh, but I did meet the guy I've been with for... 13 years on that message board so <laughs> wow this this movie that didn't get married brought you guys together it's amazing yeah. and actually two people we're not married but we've been together for 13 years and two other people i know um actually got married that were on that message board and we went to their <laughs> wedding message board. so yeah wow. <laughs> yeah um i always said that uh you don't need tender you shouldn't use tender or stuff like that you know, unless you just want to hook up. If you want to meet somebody, go find one of these places where people gather, where you can find someone that you can talk to and figure out what you have in common, you know, rather than just your base baseline. I have a job and, you know, 
this is what I look like and that kind of thing. But back to the goners, you know, uh, there were scripts. Scripts got out there. Um, one of the one of the big names um, by handle, um, because I don't want to out him if he doesn't want to be outed by his actual name, is uh, One True Bix, who founded Can't Stop the Serenity Charity that does the screenings for Serenity to um, benefit equality now wrote um wrote a great uh piece about he'd seen both of the scripts i have not seen the script i have just uh read the uh read the synopsis that i've seen everywhere but he that's a great think piece he wrote and uh about what was going to happen with this story and there were two versions of the script and i won't belabor it by talking about all the differences and details but uh, it looked like a movie that was going to be a really interesting dive into his psyche plus horror which i also thought cabin in the woods was a really great subversive horror film so um and he still mentions it. joss every once in a while he you know not very long ago he mentioned the the movie so i mean i guess the script is just buried somewhere at universal we may never see it again when talking to empire about the film joss said it ventures more into the horrific than i normally tend to I love horror movies, but I looked back on Buffy and I was like, oh, we forgot to make it scary. It was occasionally scary, but I got so wrapped up in the emotions and people and things that I missed the horror aspect. Goners comes back to that a little bit. Oh, that's so, so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, with without spoiling, I, there's it immediately starts out being way darker and way more horrific than anything I've ever seen him do, to include Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Um, uh, but but if people want to go out and read the synopsis, I mean it's 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 still Joss as far as um, the young woman in distress with powers goes, but it's it's full on a whole another kettle of fish, and and it is too bad this film never saw the light of day. It is interesting. Like, uh, so my first graphic novel is a horror uh, story called called Amelia. So it's weird that there's this Joss Whedon thing because he was such a huge <laughs> influence on me this just whedon thing a horror movie a horror movie about a character named mia and i'm like oh. um yeah there's but there's it's squarely joss there's the 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 heroine and then uh, a group of people she meets with that are also women and they're being pursued by um uh, these Clayman people, which mm. I, you know, super reminds me of the of the guys from Serenity with the you know the guys two by two hands, One, of, two blue. hands of blue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I don't know. I it's it's one of those properties. We talk about Wonder Woman and Batgirl, like maybe it would have been great, but you know we're not gonna cry in our beer that it never got made. I cry in my beer that this never got made. It does sound like it's. Of all his sort of almost but not quite properties, it's definitely the one that was A, was the closest to being finished, and B, I think would have been the best addition to his portfolio. Yeah. And while it never materialised, there may still be a tiny, slim chance that it gets made, according to Joss. Every now and then it crops up in my head. A lot of my stories that I've told, I'm like, I'm past that stage of storytelling, or I got it out of my system, and it's hard to work up the energy to go back. But every now and then with Goners, I'm like, there's something about this that hasn't been expressed yet. But I can't think about anything that involves a number of people. The central character, it's really her story. But then she falls in with this, dare I say, team. And I'm just like, Uh can I please do something that isn't that? I'm so (laughs) tired. So 
It's another question mark. Most of these are question marks, sorry, but with exclamation points and smiley emojis. <laughs> I can absolutely hear Josh saying that. I can yeah. see his face with the with smiley emojis. But so it sounds like it's not just the fans that's missed this, but it sounds like Joss really wants to get it out, but just hasn't quite found the time. I mean, knowing that a few of the elements did come from that into Cabin in the Woods, and it sounds with the idea of kind of a girl that develops powers and falls in with other powered people. Why does that seem vaguely familiar? <laughs> something, and he's got a project coming out. I can't remember the name, but it, it sounds like something quite <laughs> along those lines. Well, and I, with uh, with at the risk of spoiling it. Um, she doesn't the way she gets her powers is totally different from any other way any of his heroines have gotten their powers it's 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 really sort of sad and tragic oh and let's let's hope he doesn't bring that part in no and and i don't think i mean seeing you know the nevers and people talking about it i i think it's it's fully not going to be anything to do with that but you never know i i can't it, it could not work um, I mean, the tragic thing could work, but this is really tragic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he'll kind of put a more palatable spin on it, and that's the version. I, you know, I hope he does. I hope he he either incorporates it or gets to to express this this piece of creativity that he's got out there floating around. I mean, it's not Afterlife that was underdeveloped. That was one of his first pieces that were out there that people still are like, "What if?" Like this. This, I think, was almost fully realized, and, and the script is just in a vault somewhere, so... Fingers crossed it'll emerge one day in some form or another. So we're going to move on to the listeners' letters. Remember, people, if you have a comment, topic suggestion, or qu- a question, anything about The Nevers, anything Wheaton-related, tweet us at The Nevers Podcast, or send us an email at theneverspodcast at gmail.com, and we'll read it in an upcoming letter. Our first letter today is from the badassly named Thorias. Hi, everybody. So this is one that just came to me from out of nowhere, and I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard anyone talking about it yet. From what little information we have to go on right now, The Nevers sounds something like X-Men meets Penny Dreadful, Victorian-era drama with superpowers. Okay? But something I haven't seen any speculation on is where exactly these powers come from. What form will they take exactly? Given Joss's history with the X-Men, and if you read his run on Astonishing X-Men, you know he can write some great X-Men stories, could the powers be just the result of a natural leap forward in human biology, or might it be something else? It's fun to think about, since we don't know what the show will be like. If things like magic will play a part, or gods who get their kick by screwing around with mere mortals. So there are tons of possibilities. Will the powers be genetic, magical, divine, demonic, a gift from aliens? Or something we haven't thought of yet? That's a great question, dude. Like, that is one thing that has been really kind of tickling at the back of my mind for a while now. Just the fact that he's gone with the name The Touched. To me, that implies they've been touched by something or someone. Who exactly is it? Why Is the name The Touched just based on kind of... Victorian, ah, it's a smart woman, she's a witch, burn her. Or is that kind of a hint as to the actual source of their powers? Well, and who's calling them that? Like everyone, I think. Like no, I mean in the in, in the context of the show, I it, it, 
uh, or peop- do the people say that they're they refer to them as the touched? I'm not. While I'm an Anglophile, I'm much more medieval in my is is touched kind of lexicon for in the Victorian age for someone not being quite right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I always thought um, the origin story for where Buffy got her power was captivating. So I would, yeah. I mean, I'm really looking forward to how these, how this group of girls got their gifts. But I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say the whole kind of, like, I love the Buffy sort of uh, origin story. Like I, I, so I do hope it's, I would be okay with kind of divine slash demonic interference Gift from Aliens, I think, is stretching it slightly. But actually, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say I would be totally fine if the various different powers came from different sources. Just because they're all developing powers around the same time doesn't necessarily mean they all have to have developed them from the same source. It's correlation, not causation. Yeah. Exactly, man. Exactly. I just like I I just feel like I know so little about the Nevers still that like everything would just be everything is just pure speculation, so um, which is fun. But it's like I don't know maybe they drink some fluids from uh, Doctor Jekyll's lab. You know I don't know. Yeah, and uh, the the question of the uh, orphanage and um, Olivia Williams' role in it is kind of the dead mother as Miss Bidwell and. Um, were they are they empowered before, at the orphanage? Or are they at the orphanage because they're empowered? I mean, is she collecting them? What's going on there? I do yeah. quite like, like the idea that she's playing a kind of Victorian Nick Fury, and she's just going around taking all of the touched and bringing them into one place <laughs> to kind right. of keep them safe from us and us safe from them. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm super stoked. Uh, I demonic kind of goes back to Buffy's power. Genetic goes to Rivers' power. Um, mutation is Kitty Pride, who is his favorite X Men. So love Kitty Pride. Yeah, so I I'm with you. I, I think Aliens is a stretch, and magical kind of has to have a root. It could be magical, but mm. who's who's doing the magic? You know? Yeah, or it could be you know some Victorian version of science that does not exist currently. You know, that's that's a good point. Alchemy. It could be like alchemy. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing. The problem with that is if you go down that route, it's it's kind of it's been done quite a few times. Yeah, yeah, the alienist exactly. for sure. Or they could all just have had the same bad milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the the short answer is we have no idea. Yeah. Sorry, Thoris. Great question with a terrible answer. But yeah, the long and the short of it is, I mean, if we had even like some stills. Or a five-second teaser to go on, we might be able to give you a good idea. But right now, we just there's literally nothing to go on. So I mean, we know we know about the girl with the power of fire. Yeah, I think we know a couple others, but they aren't relatable in their powers. They're like completely different. So you may be right. It may be. I mean, I, I, I quite like the idea that, for instance, like we know there's the powers, the like the flame lady. Like maybe if like there was some kind of magical interference, whatever, that gave them those powers. And then the Earth was like, hang on, where are these superheroes coming from? I need to kind of protect myself, kind of antibodies, kind mm. of use humans as antibodies to give them power so they can combat the guys that are sort of a demonic influence or, you know, a extraterrestrial influence. 
So it's kind of like, although they are all the touched, there's actually kind of, I can't say the good touch and the bad touch. That sounds very wrong. Um, the good powered people who are sort of given their powers by the earth to try and protect it from the abilities of the bad people that are extraterrestrial. Yeah. But, very X-Men. Yeah, that thing is, that's the problem with that. It's a, it's a little too, I mean, I'm pretty sure uh, the Avengers just ran a very similar plot to that so you can't really do that well i mean i think that's classic storytelling so i think i don't think you could get blamed for using you know a trope like that it's just yeah well that's also similar to the uh legendary monster verse is redefining the kaijus or um titans as they call them as kind of nature's antibodies right true true oh yeah I would be totally fine if we didn't actually find out where their powers came from. For like, for like, it'll have to tell us eventually. But I'm totally fine if, like, the first season or two, it's just a complete mystery. They have powers, they don't know why, they don't know where they came from, and they're just doing the best with the slightly bizarre situation they're in. Well, and we won't know because that's Joss. He will slow burn (laughs) us to death on that. And and if you think about it, now that I'm I'm really going back and thinking about all of his stuff that's non Marvel related, everything all comes from the 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 the, the old ones. Yeah. <laughs> at the at the at the end of all of his storytelling, it's all related to kind of this pre man explanation of the the Titans or the old ones or how, what have you, and and the beginnings of you know kind of uh, reality. You know, Reality and that these these empowered things have been here since the dawn of time. Just normal people don't see them. Yeah. I would one hundred percent, like a thousand percent, be behind a sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu oh origin. Like each of each of the touched has been picked by one of the old gods to be their avatar in Earth. I'm down. They got that. so close to it with Cabin in the Woods. I loved yeah. the idea of the Lovecraftian sleeping, and they talked about it in Angel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with with Illyria and Hole in the World and all that kind of stuff. So, not dead but dreaming. Yeah, yeah. That 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 gets me going. <laughs> well, I hope that went some way to answering the question there, Tharias. But yeah, Tharias, write them back and tell them what you think. <laughs> yeah, go on then. If you, if you have any ideas, they're just as good as ours. Send them in. LJ Packwood on Twitter asked, Joss has a history of playing with accents and languages. Do you think we'll hear stereotypical voices of Victorian London in the Nevers or something more adventurous? Also, have you heard James Master's recording of Macbeth? I have not heard James Master's recording of Macbeth. I have. But the moment this podcast finishes, I'm going to find it. That <laughs> sounds amazing. I can tell amazing. she's a Spike fan. She's listened to all of it. That is a great question, Laura. Stereotypical voices. I have a joke here. I'm glad all the the, the majority of the actors on this are from the UK, so they can't massacre the <laughs> accents like they yeah. did on Buffy and Angel. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think they're... My feeling is they're going to have straight up London accents ranging from probably um ella who's playing the um who's playing the good time girl is probably going to have something more cockney you know we're going to have probably some high english in there somewhere depending on the characters and hopefully you know he's he was he said both james marsters who affected a british accent for spike and did it pretty well from what i understand Anthony Head, who is actually from the UK, who who has says, you know, he has a much more down to earth working man's accent than Giles, who has a much upper level accent. So I think 
Joss himself has an understanding of the dialects and the different, you know, different uh, British accents that there are out there and Irish accents and Scottish accents. So, uh, you know, obviously I think there's going to be a range. I mean, you know, Tig's actually from the UK, so let's hear what he has. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. Like, you can have an English accent, but that that's a very broad kind of umbrella term. I have a distinct suspicion he will definitely play with, you know, as you said, he has a history of messing with accents and languages with such a great chance to play with that now in such a brilliant setting where you've not only got the the, the huge variance between kind of um, Nick Frost's sort of rat king underground mob boss and then you've got like surgeons and like upper class um, former Navy admirals. And then throw into that, you've got, you have people from other countries, you have American people. Like, it's the Victorian England was such a melting pot of people and cultures that I really think it's gonna, it's a great chance to just kind of have a bit of fun. Like, throw in people from other countries just to see, like, to tell the story of that era and how it was so kind of inclusive and kind of the beginning of the multiculturalism of England. Okay. Moving on, we have a question from literally the other side of the world. Elaine from Perth, Australia, writes, Hi all, I'm a big Joss fan and can't begin to express my excitement for the Nevers. I recently read your blog post about Michelle Clapton hiring, Michelle Clapton's hiring as costume designer for the Nevers, and I'm curious to know why a production would pr- replace one well-established costume designer, Jane Petrie, who worked on the first slash pilot episode, with another well-established costume designer, Jane like Michelle, are both successful designers within the industry. Why hire Petri for the first episode, but not for the remaining ones? That's an excellent question there, Elaine. And the thing is, we, we can't really know. Like, as you, there's, there's no reason to take one production as one costume producer and replace them with another, unless there was some reason why Jane Petri just simply was unable to keep on working. It could be she had another job she had to get to, the timeframes maybe didn't mesh yeah. up. It could be, we know that the Nevers is, I believe they're looking for at least three, possibly five seasons. It could just be she wasn't willing to commit to potentially five years of working on the same project. Yeah, and or it epi- could be yeah, she had ep- one coming down the pipeline and she had to move yep. to that. Episode one is in the can, apparently. Yeah. And they haven't started shooting um, or just recently started shooting again. So for the, the what you would call the pilot, um, there are probably a lot of crew changes. And she may have had a commitment elsewhere. Um, as Tyg said, you know, uh, that Olivia Williams article that um, we talked about where she had the cancer scare. She also mentioned she signed on for five years, which denotes five seasons. Yeah, I agree. I think it's probably a, something as simple as just a production delay had her move on to a different thing. I wouldn't read any more into it than that although let's face it we've, we we managed to do about 40 minutes the other day on a time clock a major casting change behind the scenes we can probably talk a while about anyway. <laughs> elaine's not done with us yet her second question we've all read the character descriptions some of us multiple times for those in the nevers what character or characters resonate most with each of you and who has the potential to become one of your favorites and why thank you i love the show i hope we never end <laughs> Thank you, Elaine. We love you too. And we very much hope that it, we never end and we start getting paid by HBO. That Spectacular. Would be to answer your actual question, honestly, when I was reading through the characters and their little descriptions, and when we did the podcast about it, 
I just immediately love them all. There's there's so many aspects. I mean, Joss is one of the greatest character writers working today and possibly ever. All even like the worst possible characters he can create, the most evil, reprehensible beings. You, you just can't help but love them, even when they're awful. You still love them. So looking through the character descriptions, there are some that I think I'll like less. I don't think there's any that I'm not going to like. I like them. I like them all for different reasons. That said, the ones I was particularly drawn to was uh, Nick Frost's character because I love the actor. Uh, the, the character who I mentioned before, whose name I've forgotten because I have the memory of a goldfish, the one who uh, only speaks gibberish. Because there's just there's so much you can do with that kind of character, and there's so many great revelations you can bring with that base. And then Amalia, who just seems like a great kind of typical Joss protagonist. And we know he's fantastic at writing those kind of characters. And I'm sure he will keep that trend going now. So, I mean, from, like, I'm sort of looking forward to all of them. But those three are the ones that I'm particularly keeping an eye on. I think they could be my favourite going forwards. But, I mean, if Joss is anything, he's surprising. So I'm sure I'll end up loving kind of the, the evil Navy Admiral or the surgeon more than anyone else. Uh, I'm going to go with, first and foremost, uh, uh, Miss Bidwell, uh, played by Olivia Williams. I am very, very, very invested in seeing uh, what's going to happen with her. Um, I also am invested in Odium. I have been following Martin Ford on his Instagram, and he is a fascinating person, and he's just gigantic. (laughs) And I am just, I'm down to see... Just how, I mean, he has a major role, and I'm down to see how he evolves. Mm. Um, uh, Nick Frost, of course, I, it sounds, I, I joke and say sounds like this This is the uh, Nevers version of Badger, but uh, he'll he'll obviously bring so, so much to the role that he'll make, you know, he'll make it his own. Um, and I, um, I'm interested to see um, Ben Chaplin. He sounds very conflicted. He sounds like he's going to be kind of the moral center of the of the thing on you know on the show like he has to do his job for these people that want these people caught but then he gets caught up with them i I think that's that may be an interesting that's that's always a great character arc to go on you can do a lot of fun things with that have you seen into the badlands that was recently ended on amc i I saw the first season ah because um nick frost joins in the second season playing a character called Baji that was my just my runaway favorite on the show he was absolutely fantastic I'm really hoping he brings a bit of that energy so many amazing one-liners what about you Dennis who's your who's your pick for character of the show uh you guys all did a really good job of calling the ones I was gonna call um (laughs) (laughs) sorry Uh, yeah but we want to hear your take on it yeah I was interested in Nick Frost uh first because I like the guy and I like um the name Beggar King sounds really cool to me. Yeah. Um, I was also pumped for Odium because, like, I'm always there for a heavy, and I'm really hoping there's some genuine monster makeup, which is something television has been lacking for a long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so those were the two I was kind of most interested in, just based on character descriptions and the actors, which, you know, they might, might not end up being the characters I'm most interested in, when the show actually starts. And I also thought uh, Anne Skelly, here's one you guys haven't brought up. Anne Skelly is playing Penitence Adair just because she's, um, they say she's a devout 
a devout yet herit- uh, heretically progressive Irish girl. That sounds interesting to me. Just growing up Catholic, I'm always interested in somebody who's going to be struggling with Catholicism. So yeah, I don't know. It's really um, too early to tell who, obviously, who will be like real favorite characters. But uh, yeah. yeah, give me a monster heavy, you know? Okay, great questions as always there from everyone. Now we have a new segment that we've tentatively dubbed You Can Say That Again. Each episode, one of our hosts will share a line or more of dialogue from one of Whedon's works, including Runaways, Astonishing X-Men, anything, and explain why that particular line resonates with them and why they chose it. So this week, I believe Dennis is stepping into the fray. Yeah. So, Dennis. I picked um, from uh, Season 2, Episode 11 of Buffy, Giles' line, um, I believe the subtext here is rapidly becoming the text. <laughs> Uh, just because it is a very funny line um, and it speaks to the meta properties of Buffy and of um, Joss Whedon stuff in general that it's like I'm going to directly address what the metaphor we're discussing here is which is the whole of Buffy really and uh, I also thought it was a kind of an appropriate line for people who are doing a podcast that are analyzing every single moment of a show that doesn't exist yet um of like let's really make everything the text (laughs) cannot fault your choice or any of your explanations fair very well done there dude um i picked i I picked something funny um so so i i picked xander who i'm not the biggest fan of but character wise but he has some so, so truly funny moments and his comedy nikki brendan's comedy and his way of saying things is great so my line is, damn it, you know what? I'm sick of this crap. I'm sick of being the guy who eats the insects and gets the funny syphilis. As of this moment, it's over. I'm finished being everybody's butt monkey. But but the fu- it, yeah, I love Buffy going, check. check no more butt, butt monkey. monkey. <laughs> 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 I, I, I prepared nothing because I'm never prepared for anything. So we're going we're gonna to call it there. Please subscribe to us. We are the Nevers Podcast. We are available everywhere that semi-professional podcasts are to be found you can find us at hbothenevers.com follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at hbothenevers and send any comments questions concerns or suggestions that don't involve getting a new host to theneverspodcast at gmail.com thank you dennis and heather for joining us and Please feel free to share all your other connections and sites. Uh, I'm Heather of Heather, Jackie, and Joss from theneverscast.com. We are the little, kind of the little sister podcast to this one. Um, we started later and we don't have many as many episodes, but we're all buddies. Um, and our next episode will be Christmas-oriented, where we will be covering any news that comes out and doing a breakdown of uh, uh, Buffy's uh, episode of Men's. So you can find us on social media um, at the Nevers Cast uh, on let's see Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the um online where you can play our podcasts or they're also available on Apple, uh, iTunes, um, Play, and anywhere else that vends your hot off the press podcasts. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Woo. Uh, and I've been uh, Dennis St. John. Uh, you can find me on the internet. Uh, usually I'm at Dennis Comics. That's Dennis with one N and Comics with an S. Or X, sorry. That's uh, at D-E-N-I-S 
C-O-M-I-X. That's my Twitter, my Instagram, and my .com. Um, if you want to check out uh, the comics I work on, uh, they're on my .com and my Patreon, which is uh, Dennis St. John. Uh, I'm also on the host of the podcast, uh, Buffy Virgin, if you want to listen to me talk more about Buffy than I already have today. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you want to watch some cartoons I worked on um, and you're on you got a new Apple device. You can watch uh, Snoopy in Space on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, so that is everything I've been working on recently. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to go watch Snoopy in Space right now. Well, that's just about it for the and the year. So from everyone here at the Nevers Podcast, have a happy holidays. And we'll see you in 2020 for more wild theories, more in-depth discussion, and if we're very lucky, some actual information. So until then, we'll see you next time on the Nevers Podcast. And I am not on social media because I don't like the idea of being held accountable for things that I've said. <laughs> so. God, I love you, Ty. <laughs> this episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. So, what happens now? Exterior, Greece, afternoon. We fly above the beautiful city, frame up on an ancient temple sitting on the edge of a cliff. As we see it, the invisible plane whooshes through frame, rippling the visuals. Exterior temple, a bit later... Diana is kneeling before a statue of Athena. The one is small and worn with age, but it's recognizably her. We find Steve standing at the edge of the temple, by the cliff, waiting. After a time, she gets up, walks by him to the cliff's edge, looking out at the sunset. It's not what you're used to. I still feel her here. Athena? What'd you say to her? I'll tell you one day. She puts a toe over the cliff. Whoa, whoa, hey, hey, Diana, the chet's over there. Or, or there. I know. I've been thinking about gliding, about reading the wind on my own. It would be useful. Reading the... Okay, you're a hell of a woman, but Diana, you, <laughs> you can't fly. She throws fight in comprehension with a little ironic smile underneath. Can't. Blackout. The words Wonder Woman at the screen. The end. <laughs>